1: I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far... and
0: jealousy,
1: <laughs> K-O-K-W calling when you call him. I'm on international frequency. Come in.
3: Tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are.
1: There was a time when eating was a pleasure. Huh? Madison Street. Do you indeed think that there is life on other planets? Oh, stop. Oh, stop. This would be more effective at midnight with howling winds and crashing thunder, and even then it wouldn't frighten anyone. May the flames cleanse thy soul of its evil, of its lust for blood. Five seconds, Mr. Weigel. Oh, okay. Cue announcer. announcer. Welcome to Ian Punnett's Vaudeville for the Frightened. A fresh mix of audio art, music, interviews, and fiction that will have you wondering, what is there to be afraid of? Here's the deacon of the dark, Ian Punnett. In this new
2: episode of Vaudeville for the Frightened, episode seven, of the bottom of the box series we'll have a special wildcat community theater of the air double feature but let's first go over what we know some of the themes we've been discussing like superstition fear and jealousy serial killers often hide in plain sight there could be two to three thousand at work at any time in the united states hundreds of them just working the highways. Each person largely fits into one of two categories, organized and disorganized. Serial killers of both types take time off between deaths. Nobody can determine a serial killer based on appearance alone. In fact, many serial killers are highly accomplished in life. Think about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, achieved a Ph.D. in mathematics from the University of Michigan. Ted Bundy, handsome guy, had a degree in psychology and was in law school as he killed across the country. In the U.K., Stephen Griffiths, the so-called crossbow cannibal, murdered at least three sex workers while he was finishing his Ph.D. in, wait for it, Homicide studies. Connor Sturgeon, the 25-year-old former bank analyst who shot and killed four of his colleagues after losing his job, was a star athlete in high school and destined for great things, but suffered multiple concussions, which forever changed his brain's ability to process things in the same way that it used to. At least, that's what a friend claimed. Serial killers are frequently married, have kids, have jobs, mortgages, retirement dreams. For some, serial killing is something they hope that they can never succumb to again. Well, for others, it's like a retirement hobby. They look forward to getting back to. Biochemical imbalances in any of our brains can change over time. And if you pardon the expression, that can trigger stress in search of a release. If 3,000 serial killers are operating in the U.S., how many could any of us have interacted with in our lifetimes and not even known it? I have, in fact, known several people who have gone to prison for murder. If 3,000 seems like a bizarre number to you, Consider that there are only about 500 crime scene cleaning companies in the country, and each one employs, let's say, about six cleaners. So the number of crime scene cleaners is about the same as the number of serial killers. Coincidence? We do know that while both Serial sexual offenders and serial killers may share a common background. Their predations are different, and one does not necessarily become the other. There needs to be more well-trained police detectives that protect the public in hot and cold cases and don't just rely on luck. Intuition is undependable, and sometimes... When the police officers themselves aren't up to the task, these are bells that cannot be unrung. Every investigator has to sort through a lot of ground clutter on their radars to find the truth of what happened. But consider it this way. It's not the power of the best police officers that society should fear. It's that the least qualified, the least mature, the least emotionally intelligent police officers have the same power to walk around with firearms, arrest people, search people's homes, and they usually have the sympathetic ears of a jury if they abuse those powers. What else do we know for sure? A lack of training encourages police to depend on their intuitions and to lead them to incorrect suspects. Often, if cops depend on intuition to pursue suspects, intuition can backfire. Red herrings in investigations are everywhere. These coincidences are natural. They happen, but they are distracting. And it takes the time of a disciplined investigator to separate our real leads and real suspects From false ones. Sometimes the guilty go free because of investigative myopia. Sometimes intuition leads investigators to focus on the right person for the wrong reason. Sometimes the guilty are caught early in their criminal careers, meaning we will never know what they were capable of. They may not either. False subjects might look perfect but are fool's gold for detectives. People can be careless and mean and selfish when it comes to their careers. But we do have questions in all of what we've heard so far that remain unsolved as they have been from the very first episode. What is the meaning of Mark's recurring nightmare about watching his whole family being wiped out by a killer who seems to be working the highways. What is his subconscious trying to sort out, as Dr. Orloff suggested, or could it be a symbolic cautionary vision, similar to what Ernie LaPointe swears by? And just what is in the bottom of the box? Which of the many boxes we've talked about so far does the title refer to? After all, that may be the biggest mystery. And that will require a Wildcat Community Theater of the Year double feature to wrap up this series next. (laughs)
1: Punnett's vaudeville for the frightened. Use your ears to fight your fears. Series one, the bottom of the box.
3: So, did you always want to work cold cases? Since the academy, it probably first occurred to me in high school when I learned that my grandmother had been murdered instead of dying by natural causes, which I had always been told.
4: Hmm. And they
3: never caught the killer? They had suspects, but the investigators botched the case. It remains unsolved. How about you? I used to work hot cases, but after a few decades trying to track
4: serial killers, working the highways, I just got really depressed.
3: What's your estimate of the number of serial killers out there?
4: Easily hundreds. Hundreds? And that's just the highways. Even the experts don't agree. Sometimes they take years off between attacks because they have careers or raising kids or they move for work, but they'll get triggered again eventually. So, why not just quit? <laughs> Long story. I'd put in for early retirement. I was burned out. The department shrink recommended that I ride a desk until I hit retirement, but I was ruled fit for duty, so quitting wasn't an option if I wanted that pension. Then they offered me this. It was as good as it was going to get. It's everything I love about being a homicide detective without the lawyers and the blood, in that order.
3: Okay, what did you find? Well, I don't know if I found anything other than something interesting. These two boxes are the files that contain everything on the Angel McCarty murder.
4: The woman who was found off a rural highway in South Georgia back around
3: 2009, no car or ID... Why that one? I don't know. We got a request from a GBI agent in Douglas County looking for anything we might have on the Angel McCarty case. And, since I was new, I got the honors.
4: Okay, go on.
3: I pull these two file boxes on the table. What do you notice?
4: One is labeled McCarty number one with the case number, and the other is the same except labeled number two. Is that all? Case box 2 is more weathered. Looks like somebody spilled a liquid on the top that dried years ago, something milky.
3: Yeah, right? I didn't notice it at first, and then I saw that dried coffee with a stain running down the side of the box, and this place here where it looked like it pulled on top and dripped inside. The way I figure it is, some detective was going over the contents of case box 1 while they were using case box 2 as a coffee table. Somehow, the coffee got knocked over and got into the box through the scene here.
4: Okay, I accept that theory. So
3: what? So, I came down to process the request by Douglas County for everything that had gone into the file. The log indicated nothing new had been added for years, but I wanted to be thorough. So I thought I would inventory it at once to make sure it was all in there. That's when I turned over the whole box onto this table and started cross-referencing numbers. I was one document short from what the log said was in the box, a transcript called The Case of the Kleenex Killer, all with case and a smiley face drawn after it that wasn't on the table. I thought that was weird, so I checked in the upside down box again and noticed these coffee stained pages had dried onto the bottom of the box. Hmm, how did you get them out? See this part that's curled up slightly with a tear in it? Clearly somebody had tried to pull it off the bottom of the box before then stopped when they noticed they were ripping it. So I signed it out, took the box upstairs to the break room, filled the wastebasket with super hot water, placed the box on top of the wastebasket, and after 30 seconds of steaming it, I peeled it off. Hmm, clever. Did you learn anything? I think so. You see here, this is a copy of a letter that somebody sent into the bureau claiming to have known the vic's killer, but not by name. In fact, He writes that he feels responsible for Angel McCarty's death. You know we
4: get hundreds of false
3: confessors every year. And that's probably what this is too. But I've seen a bunch of these confession junkie letters, but never one like this. First, it's printed from a computer. Zero spelling errors. Perfect grammar. Not to mention, double-spaced. Times New Roman font. Twelve-point type? These notes usually look like they're written with crayons or popsicle sticks. What salty nut bar writes a letter like this one?
4: <laughs> a well-educated one?
3: Yeah, right. I mean, it's just the guy seems to write a lot of formal reports of something. It's the content. Read it.
4: Dear special agents, Although I am no longer a resident of Georgia, I recently saw an article online about the unsolved murder of Angel McCarty, and I would like to offer my assistance by way of confession. Two years ago, I suffered from postpartum depression that was going untreated because the acute form of this condition is rarely reported by men and most often associated only with women. While understudied, research data indicates that 1 in 10 fathers also experience PPD and serious symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. In my case, outwardly, I suffered in silence after the birth of my child. But my inner conversations were dominated by evil thoughts of fight or flight. The walls were closing in on me from every direction, and I felt as though I was being buried alive. I was in a pine box, and every doctor's bill or past due notice felt like another nail in the lid that would entomb me forever. Even though a part of me knew it was completely irrational, I blamed my wife and child for my 24-hour dread. The fog of the male postpartum depression gripped my throat from the inside and prevented me from screaming help as it slowly strangled me in the view of others. If my wife were cross with me, but especially when she was upset with me for not bringing in enough money while she delighted in the wonders of motherhood by bouncing her baby on her knee, I saw the faint face of a devil under her skin. It was though she were a demon was wearing a flesh suit ripped off my real wife's bones that didn't fit right. I became convinced that our new baby was growing horns, and every time I was asked to change our daughter, I searched my baby's diapers for signs that she was nursing blood from my wife's breasts. As I fell deeper into these postpartum delusions, I became convinced that my wife was now a succubus, and our child had been replaced with something so unholy that it must be killed in the crib. I was too late or too weak from sleeplessness to flee, so my only option was to fight. Using a colleague's computer, I searched how to hire a hitman with surprising results. Not just one, but two people were willing to kill my family for just a few thousand dollars. I chose to engage the one who seemed to my PPD addled brain to be less likely to be an undercover cop. I got a burner phone, and the negotiation became a conversation. A guy who went by Randy was unfazed when I told him that I needed to kill my wife and my child. He sounded as though he wanted to. Almost before I finished my proposition, a photo popped on my burner phone from Randy of the woman I now know to be Angel McCarty. The photo appeared to be the original because it was lit by the cell phone and had a time stamp in the corner. The body was face down with blood trickling out of her mouth. But so much of her face was visible that I remember her expression of shock. He bragged quite offhandedly that he kills hitchhikers, prostitutes, and stranded women along the roadways at will. The impending reality of our conversation should have horrified me. But instead, for the first time, I saw a light at the end of the tunnel that I couldn't get to fast enough. Then Randy told me the plan. The same M.O. he used with Angel McCarty. The same play he had run dozens of times. I was to drive to an isolated spot where he would be hidden nearby in a separate car waiting with a friend. Randy recommended an isolated and abandoned roadside gas station just outside Valdosta that was off I-75 South. Randy explained how Angel McCarty's husband disoriented her with a big fight about his driving style in the car Randy then approached Angel from the darkness as a man in distress from a broken nose with blood all over his face after a car accident up the road. Would she have some sort of Kleenex or towel he could use to stop the bleeding? With Angel's guard down, she moved sympathetically toward Randy to get a better look at his supposed wound. When she turned back to her car for a rag or something, he shot her point blank. Randy and his accomplice then stuffed Angel in his trunk to dump her somewhere else, took the keys for her car from her husband, and drove off in the night. Angel's husband was supposed to wait an hour before finding the nearest cop or police station. And that's how that went down. With Angel McCarty, anyway. The only problem was he asked for $5,000 for the job, but I told him that I didn't have that kind of cash. However, he
0: could
1: could
4: could
2: have have everything everything I I did did own. own. A used Volvo station wagon, all this fancy new baby stuff, and this really expensive child's car seat that looked like it had been ejected from an F 16. By chance, a new safe car, high end baby equipment, and a top of the line car seat was what Randy was going to spend the money on anyway. He had a new baby on the way, and his girlfriend was after him to be a better provider. He seemed very focused on making her happy. So we had a deal. We agreed on 2 a.m. at that abandoned gas station near Valdosta on I-75. Now, you should know, there are very few pivotal moments in my life. For me, the first time I read Catcher in the Rye, pivotal. The second was the birth of my daughter, pivotal. The third came when I pried off the invisible hand that had been gripping my throat and I aborted the plan to kill my family and start from scratch. It all came down to seconds. My wife and I had switched places. Randy had emerged from the shadows and she had started to walk toward him. And I suddenly knew there was another way. I knew I had to either act on it right then or my wife and child were going to end up like Angel McCarty. What had been wrong with me? How could this ever have been the only way out? Get in the car. I heard myself saying in my head. I would have said it out loud, but I couldn't. Get in the car. She was within six feet of the guy when she turned around and started walking back to the car.
0: Well, I don't know if I have a Kleenex, but I might have a wet
2: ones. I was incredulous, and I was trapped. Get in the car! And that's when I noticed this man with the bloody nose was beginning to make his move. I knew I had only seconds to make mine. What are you doing? Get in the car! Thank God she did. Randy seemed confused by me screaming, and he was disoriented enough to give my wife a moment to jump behind the wheel and take off. As we pulled away, Randy had an expression on his face that was a a mix of disappointment, anger, and a sense of, what am I going to tell my girlfriend? And my daughter would never know just how close to the edge of life Male postpartum depression had pushed me. It triggered something deep down inside. It's been two years since I left Randy underneath that flickering, busted Texaco sign. God only knows how many hardworking family women he has killed for fun or profit. He must be stopped. I mean, killing prostitutes or women like my mother... Fine. But my daughter? That would have been wrong.
3: Creepy, huh? Do we believe him? My intuition says yes, but he confuses me. He obviously thinks it's okay to kill some women. Obviously, the officer who dismissed this
4: as the case of the Kleenex killer didn't share that intuition. He notes on the file here that somebody called a week later to confirm the letter had been received, asked whether we were going to act on it, and then hung up without answering any questions. But we can run Randy through VICAP with these details. Or he could turn out to be the most educated,
3: creative confession junkie we've ever encountered. Maybe, but I read this two days ago and I keep having this vision of us finding Randy in some dark, windowless bar and seeing the look on his face when it's two women who are bringing him to justice. Or maybe it's just a dream the letter writer was having. Only one way to find out. You grab a box and I'll grab a box and we'll get to work.
2: You're gonna wake up the fish. (laughs) Uh, I used to say that to Avi. When she was little... We were going for an early morning row on the water. Oh, uh, Avi's my daughter, by the way. Fox Turtle Lake is so beautiful at night with the moonlight shimmering off the surface. I, I wish you could see the stars like I see them right now, but I don't want to undo your blindfold yet because, according to the GPS, We're almost there, and it would ruin the excitement. Anyway, it'll be over soon. The 20-pound weights around your ankles will take you down fast. And the box is so deep and cold, you may even see an actual box turtle on your way down. You know, the box turtle was almost our state reptile. True, a freshwater octopus is just a myth. Still, I call my little collection of women like you standing permanently at attention for me on the bottom of the box, my octopus's garden. You'll be number six, just so you know, and you'll have company. Those other ladies... Got to be sick of each other by now. They've been down there for so long. The water is so cold at the bottom of the box that the human body gets all waxy, but it doesn't really decompose. And you are special. Did I mention that? You are special. My wife gave me permission just for you. That's a first. She said, Do what I need to do to feel better. Well, being a great citizen is what I do to feel better. That's how it's been since I made that deal on the side of the road. I'm only doing what our government does, only faster, right? I mean, you enjoy doing certain drugs, which the government. Sh- 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 which the government makes you sell your body to get. That's what's really killing you, not me. I picked you out from your Twitter post, just like the, the trash I used to pick up at rest stops because society had already thrown you away. I kind of like to picture myself as like a Boy Scout earning a merit badge beautifying the world with a pointed stick and a canvas bag. You know what? You're like, you're like the beer can just rolling in the wind along the side of the road, except, except now I do it on social media apps. Now, you might be wondering, why so long between you and number five? Were you wondering that? Well, the first one was ten years ago. And it was so disappointing. I mean, I wasn't hoping for a parade or anything, but I wasn't expecting total silence either. I felt like Tchaikovsky after he played his famous piano concerto, number one, to Rubinstein. Now, I would, you probably don't know that story, do you? So (laughs) I'm telling it to you like you grew up with this stuff, but I waited for some mention of number one in the paper. Posters around town. Something. It would have been too much to hope for, one of those missing white girls of the week, you know, like Natalie Holloway, but, but nothing. Not a single word. Not a single remark. If you knew how stupid and intolerable the situation is of a man who cooks and then sets before a friend a meal which then his friend proceeds to eat in total silence. Oh, but for one word, for a friendly remark, but for God's sake, even a word of sympathy, if not one of praise. My need was for commentary about my technique, for everybody to wonder, where did she go? But... The media maintained a silence of the greatest significance. It was like one missing prostitute didn't matter. I wanted to yell, Well? I was not only astounded, but I'll be honest with you, I was a little outraged by the whole scene. I'm no longer a boy trying his hand at composition like I did when I had Mal drive off before Randy could pull the trigger, I had to set out to prove that I no longer needed lessons from anyone, especially from that Randy guy, but the silence. So I waited a while, and I performed my second opus, and still nothing. But when Mary Kate Campbell was killed, I realized that from the media's point of view... It wasn't about quantity. Perceived value was the issue. The point I was trying to make all along. Mary Kay Campbell was a beautiful young grad student with her whole life in front of her. Nobody cares about you crack whores. I mean, no offense. It was just so agitating. How many missing prostitutes... Wait, sorry, excuse me sex workers will equal one college graduate student and finally bring the media back to the campus for another cookout for a week so when I wash you clean in the waters of Box Turtle Lake you'll finally be serving that higher purpose you know what that is? helping me relax I used to let the ladies I lured from the highways run around the cabin free a little bit before I shot them. But have you ever tried dragging a body through the woods to a boat without being noticed? I mean, that is hard work. The crossbow seemed like fun for a time. You know, like that famous crossbow cannibal in the UK, but yeesh, after two of those, I knew that even though it was quieter and, okay, granted, a little more sporting, it was still a lot of work to use a crossbow and the blood. Huh, I don't mind telling you. It was a lot easier on my back tricking you into thinking that we were going to have sex on the dock for all that extra money. In the end, it's all worth knowing. You'll be down there looking up at the surface, waiting for me to return My octopus's garden, my happy place. What some might call an imaginary world, it's my go-to. I mean, you're down there and you're real, right? So, so are the other five ladies, just waiting to bring comfort to me. And in times of great stress, I'll add another so you'll have somebody new to get to know. In the meantime, you'll see me row by now and then, just floating on the surface, maybe having lunch with Avi. Oh, she doesn't know anything about this, by the way. Or having a glass of wine, but don't worry, I won't forget about you, whatever your name is. I'll always pour some wine into the lake and toast the good work that you're doing for me. Okay, time to get ready, get started with your new life. Into the water, you, into the water, no, no fight. Into the water, you go, oh. well, that feels better. Thank you, Mal. I owe you for this one. Trying to knock me out of a promotion? I did not see that coming. Not, not from you. By adding another sex worker to my lady's auxiliary on the bottom of the box though, I think I can, I think I can forgive you, Mal, for wanting to ruin my reputation on campus. Well, actually, might take two. Someday, Mal, I mean, we both know, you will have to pay for this act of disloyalty. Just like my mother did. With the distant rumble of a racing motorboat and a horn sounding a warning, we know now the final and true meaning of The Bottom of the Box, the first story for the Vaudeville for the Frightened series. My wife hates that ending. But I've always been fond of the unreliable narrator motif in fiction myself. She said... I don't like that you're the killer. But narrating the story myself and playing off my own image and reputation as a generally nice guy, I cast myself against type, which was fun. Plus, so many of the elements of the story are true, that me being the narrator and me being Mark is already a blurred line. What I like about that is, in effect, The narrator did it, right? But this means I should probably explain more about what is and what is not true about what you've just heard next.
4: fill for the frightened
1: use your ears to fight your fears series one the bottom of the box
2: well i hope you've enjoyed bottom of the box as i mentioned along the way this story represents a series of true events in my life laid over my ongoing research into the mindset of people who murder for example I really was saved at the last second from a creepy kid in my neighborhood who wanted to do me harm, saved by my older brother. My wife and I really did have an encounter with a guy with a bloody nose at an abandoned rest stop north of Valdosta on my way to a Thanksgiving with my family just after our first child was born. It was a boy, by the way. And she really did start walking toward him in the middle of the night, then turned back to go to the car to get a baby wipes for his face while I was in the back. And I really did have to keep saying, get in the car until she finally came to her senses, something I obsessed over for years. How close did I come to seeing my wife abducted or killed? And I really did call the incident in to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI, and they did put a guy on the phone for me to take my information, who thought the whole thing was really kind of silly, and he blew me off. The higher ed journals are filled with stories about backstabbing and kneecapping of academics by other academics to prevent them from getting promotions or even, quote-unquote, canceling them. Obviously, Charlie Pellegrino's story is true about the Jurassic Park incident, as many of you are already aware, as are so many of the other elements in the story. I do have a wonderful relationship with my mother, however, so that's not even remotely true. But I did flat out lie to the police when I was a kid to draw them subconsciously, I can only assume to the house of the boy in the neighborhood that would have been my molester. And he really did later go to prison. And he really did threaten to kill me if I told anyone. Plus, the anonymous shooter who roamed the streets of my hometown at night working up the courage to kill somebody is based on a famous murder in my hometown. In fact, that kid's parents came to my wedding. And people I know who study such things insist that the detectives were thrown off because of the total randomness of the murders. They spent a full six months trying to make sense out of them and then only tripped over the right path by virtue of somebody who knew more details than they had told previously and came forward. Police described aspects of the crime appearing professional like it was a professional hit, while others indicated an inexperienced killer. They could not agree. The media referred to it actually as a hit that was connected to the Irish Republican Army, believe it or not. Coincidentally, the teenage killer who had been starting fires roaming the streets at night idolized mob hitmen and once fired a pellet gun at somebody passing his house on the sidewalk. But at every turn, his parents used their money and influence to get him out of trouble, going so far as to check him out of a psychiatric facility and never bringing him back. Even by his own admission, had it not been for a seemingly random break, he was destined to kill again and again. But given that serial killers and CEOs have virtually identical psychological profiles and they both use well crafted facades to hide their similar traits, it may just be a matter of wobbles. A fundamental principle in theoretical math wobbles exist everywhere that variables are present. For example, Nine out of 10 times, a shortstop in baseball can field a ground ball in the dirt cleanly, easily accounting for slight deviations in the ball's path due to wet turf, new leather, topspin, backspin on the ball when it left the bat. Sometimes, however, a ground ball can hit an unseen rock and take a weird hop and end up in left field, while the shortstop Thought that he or she had a bead on the ball, there was a wobble in the formula that can be detected on replay. Probability, predictability, is just a case of wobbles. Many of the same formative events that created a serial killer or a CEO happened to me. But something accounted for or compensated for the wobble, which neutralized its impact. I'm fascinated by this. I am not Mark. I am not a serial killer. Neither likely are you. But under other circumstances, in the randomness of life wobbles, who knows? And that's the part my wife hates. When I speak as though somehow, somewhere, on another planet, in an alternative universe maybe, it could be possible. That it's just math. That's just science. That's just luck. That's just faith. Call it whatever you want. Life wobbles are everywhere. And any outcomes may only be detected on replay. This is why parents who raised two children under the exact same circumstances, only to see one become a happy, productive member of society and the other a menace, a villain, are often just left scratching their heads. All great literature, the greatest stories ever told, are all premised on the unpredictability of life. Predictable stories are boring stories. Every recipe for effective mysteries needs red herrings. Twas ever thus. Well, now you know what's at the bottom of the box. So how do we wipe this all away? Let's end on something more positive, like Ernie LaPointe, Sitting Bull's great-grandson, who had a vision. This vision is something I think we can all get behind in the next episode on Vaudeville for the Frightened. This episode of Vaudeville for the Frightened featured the Wildcat Community Theater of the Air, Tracy Van Camp and Fernanda Martinez. The theme for Vaudeville for the Frightened was written by Andrew Clark and performed by Ryan Winters and Pistol Beauty. Original music by Colby Van Camp. Engineered by Jacob Cummings, Colby Van Camp, and Mason Camara. Special thanks to Marjorie Punnett, Corny Cole, Lisa Lyon, Chris Boros, Bill May, Tom Danheiser, and Julie Talbot. And thank you, Joe Brandmeier. This has been a 4th Down in 10 production.
1: I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far...